You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. the most talented mob lawyer in all of Kansas. Did I mention to you that I really wish you wouldn't do that? Yeah. They told me I'm going to break his fingers. As an attorney, I advise you to cease and desist. I'm almost done. If you are what you do, and you never do anything, then you know, what are you? Our finest gifts we bring for How much? $2,147,000. Anybody but a lawyer would consider the consequences. Does this mean you're rich, Charlie? Because if you are, we could run away together. It is a thought. Leaving which top? Damn right, it's a thought. I should be home in Kansas City watching my kids open their Christmas presents. Now I gotta waste the whole day looking for that nitwit. Have you seen Charlie tonight? No, you just missed him. Maybe we should leave now. In case you haven't noticed, there's a hockey rink out there. Boy, I didn't realize how slippery that was. You going somewhere, Mr. Argust? No. That guy you thought might be looking for you? He is. Just act normal for a few hours and we're home free. Yo, ho, ho! It's good to see you! I want to know, when I use the word normal... I think I scraped my tummy. If we're understanding it the same way, don't poke. Hurry up. Oh. Yeah, Mo. You don't have any bugs for this day. Everybody has regrets. You're in love with me. I've always liked you. <laughs> Mr. Argus? Ouch, that had to hurt. Oh, yeah, I sure did. If you You Argus, drop the gun. You ever notice how weird people get this time of year? Yeah. It's Christmas. Everybody's nice on Christmas. Only morons are nice at Christmas. What's that, Roy? Damn, I took his gun. Guess he must have another one. Must have. When I get out of here, I'm going to kill you. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary. Joining me, of course, Mr. Mike White. Yo-ho-ho, mofo. Yeah, it is Christmas time. This week, we're talking about the 2005 film from director Harold Ramis, that's right, that guy, called The Ice Harvest. Based on the novel by Scott Phillips, it tells the tale of a mob lawyer, Charlie, in Wichita, Kansas, played by John Cusack, who decides to rip off his mob boss, Bill Gerard, played by Randy Quaid, of over $2 million. Charlie decides to bring in his pal Vic, played by Billy Bob Thornton, to help, and it all goes down on Christmas Eve. As the evening goes on, the freezing rain comes on, making it 
dangerous to get around, and we soon find out that the partnership between Charlie and Vic is not as stable as Charlie would like it to be. We will be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen Ice Harvest, it is available in various places, I think, uh, on Netflix Instant, the last time I checked, when I watched it. So if you haven't had a chance to see it, you should probably take a look, and then come back and visit us, because we're here when you are. So, Mike, when was the first time you saw the Ice Harvest, and what did you think? I saw the Ice Harvest years ago at a uh, noir con. You know, we talked a lot about that in our November stuff when we were talking about films noir. I think that my friend Lou Boxer, who runs noir con, sent me a, a DVD of this, um, but I hadn't had a chance to watch it, and then he ended up showing it at NoirCon in this little, at the Society Hill Playhouse, little uh, the cabaret-type atmosphere. So it was a bunch of folks just hanging out, watching this movie. I want to say Scott Phillips was actually in attendance, so he gave us a little bit of an intro. And uh, it was pretty much the perfect audience for a film like this, this nice, very taut neo-noir, and uh, have enjoyed it ever since. So I was very glad when you said, hey, let's cover the Ice Harvest. Well, for me, I hadn't been too familiar with it until recently, and I think what got me onto it was, uh, sadly, the passing of Harold Ramis, and also looking through our past guest and realizing that we had had Scott Phillips on before, and thought that it might be good to bring him back and kind of talk about his book and the novel and all of that stuff in this film. So why not put two and two together and give us an opportunity to uh, remember... um, I think this may have been one of the last films that uh, Harold Ramis did. Uh, yeah, the, he had just done uh, he had done some episodes of The Office after this, and he did that. I won't make fun of it because I never saw it. Uh, I just really had no desire to see it. That movie Year One with Michael Sarah and Jack Black. But yeah, this was the last I would say serious film that he directed. And it is kind of serious, and it's interesting because, as you said, you saw it at NoirCon, and it is a good neo-noir, and it does have all these kind of odd elements that I think are really charming and uh, and interesting at the same time, and I think that you get great performances out of the cast in total, and it's uh, it's really well done. I mean, because I never really thought of Harold Ramis as sort of a thriller or crime director. No, this was definitely a step outside of his comfort zone. I mean, he, he's mostly known, well, his greatest film, I think, is Groundhog Day, and, you know, he's known otherwise for, like, Vacation and Caddyshack, but then he did, you know, even analyze this and analyze that and multiply which to me are like, you know, B, C level comedies or maybe even lower in the case of Multiplicity. I've only seen that movie once, but I absolutely hated it when I saw it. So this is definitely a step outside of what he was normally known for. And I thought that he did a terrific job. I mean, this movie is this tight, nice thriller. You've got some humorous elements to it, uh, some laugh out loud spots to it and i think that his sensibility really melded well with scott phillips's sensibility so we should get into it it starts with opening on uh, christmas eve day and we see charlie and he's in the bank and then he comes out with this bag and he meets vic played by billy bob thornton in the car and they're discussing what just happened which is he just walked out of the bank with about two million dollars well how'd it go Good. Went good. How much? A lot. Am I gonna have to slap the shit out of you? How much? Vic, it's a great big fucking pile of money. 
$2,147,000 in change. soon learn that they've partnered up to try and rip off the uh, I guess the head of the mob who runs a series of strip joints and other places that they're connected to. And I like that they talk about Bill Gerard so much more than you actually see him. I mean, he is this kind of looming figure in the movie that you just hear them talk about him often. The Mike Starr character, kind of the same thing, though you do see Mike Starr throughout the film as uh, Gerard's I guess for lack of a better term, his enforcer. And in the book, really, they did a lot of this. I know we'll talk more about the book as we go along, but um, there were, it was really like Vic, um, the uh, Mike Starr character, and Bill were mostly talked about, but not very much seen. You really didn't even get Vic until the second half of the book. But it's nice that they kind of bring him more into it and that you do get to see Mike Starr as he's going around and he becomes more of this kind of ominous figure as um, you see him talking to people at these different strip clubs and looking for, at least you think he's looking for Charlie and and that ends up to to be the case. But um, And then Billy Bob, Billy Bob Thornton, very interesting actor to me. I mean, he can be in really great stuff. He can be in really horrible stuff. He can be terrific. He can be eh, whatever. In this one, I thought that he played that kind of slimy, you don't really want to trust this guy, but you do because he's kind of charming character. I thought that he really nailed this performance. Well, he, to me, is such a sociopath in here because there really is not a lot of affect for him. He doesn't seem overly angry. He doesn't seem overly happy. He's just kind of flat. And the way that he acts throughout is just sort of matter of fact. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And just him um, immediately you know, telling Charlie, like, oh, you shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be seen together. Let me ask you something. Did I make a mistake when I made you my partner in this deal? Hey, you didn't make me your partner. I am the one who showed you how to steal $2 million worth of Bill Gerard's money. Then I showed you how to do it so he wouldn't know what you'd done until it was too late. What we've done. Okay? Remember that, what we've done. And here's the thing about what we've done. Mr. Orglist? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Left to yourself, you'd still be on a bar stool thinking about how it could be done if somebody had the balls to do it. Which is me. Don't poke, Vic. Okay? I get it. He seems to have much more of a scheme going on, and Charlie definitely seems to be like he's being played for somebody, even from the get-go with this. You know, Charlie's very nervous, doesn't want to screw up or anything, and Vic's immediately telling him, like, what are you doing? You shouldn't be here. Get out. <laughs> so it, they set it up very early on, this relationship between these two characters. And I think also, as you were talking about going back just a little bit about the back and forth of, you know, Bill this, Bill that, kind of remind me in a way, and, and I know that there had been things that were written and interviews done about this in reference to Orson Welles and The Third Man, and sort of like how Harry Lyme is referenced over and over and over again, and then when he finally shows up, then you're like, uh-oh, you know, like he's here. And I, I think it was 
Wells who said that that's the best character to play. Have them talk about you for like half the play or half the film and then you show up and then there's so much mystery and, and suspense just built around the fact that all these people are talking about you. It's like Mink in Miller's Crossing, I suppose. And when, when Steve Buscemi shows up, you know you're in for a treat. <laughs> so we get into Charlie's world and we learn that he's a lawyer and specifically a mob lawyer. He used to be married. He has these kids and uh, he seems really detached from everything. Like you, we see his place and it's very, it's very uh, glass and metal and it's not a very uh, warm <laughs> home. We, we just get kind of the feeling that he's, kind of off by himself, that either the the choices he's made in his life or circumstances that have played out have kind of put him on the fringes, especially in this, I guess, we could consider Kansas much like, I guess, Michigan in some way, where we're from, this sort of, you know, Midwestern families around the holiday kind of thing. I really like that we learn so much about Charlie through other characters, and we've learned a little bit about him through Vic, but then we really learn a lot about him when he runs across Pete, who is the, in the book, he's his brother-in-law, and in this one, he's the new husband to to Charlie's ex-wife. And so you basically get this whole idea of what was Charlie like as a husband to this woman by looking at how Pete is a husband to this woman and then their interactions, Pete and Charlie. And I love the interactions between these two guys throughout this part of the film. Peter Van Hooten is a friend of yours, right? (laughs) Yes. He's in no shape to drive. Charlie fucking Oglis! Yo, ho, ho, mofo, what are you doing here, man? Merry Christmas, it's good to see you, good to see you. What are you doing in here, man? The real people are in there. Let's go in here. uh, Everybody, I want you to meet, listen up, a friend of mine. This is Charlie Arglis, the most talented and handsome mob lawyer in all of Kansas. (laughs) I really wish you wouldn't do that. Oh, come on. Come on, there's Vic Gavinow you're hanging out with right back So what? Hey, let me ask you a question. It's true that one time he cut the hand off of somebody who stuck their fingers up the twazala of a dancer over at Tizorama? Look around the bar. Do you see a lot of one-armed men in here? So you have not only him trying to kind of babysit Pete a little bit, because Pete is three sheets to the wind throughout almost the entire run of his time in the movie, but... You also have him worried about everything that's going on with the transaction that he just did, and is Bill going to find out? We need to get out of town soon, but there's a definite timetable when it comes to taking the money and getting out of Wichita, and he's trying to work this schedule as he's babysitting Pete. And at the same time, dealing with the weather. The ice storm keeps happening, and the the driving's not so good. The old question, or I should say the modern question of how you deal with cell phones. You know, if you set a movie 20, 30 years ago, you could get away with having a character find a uh, payphone, or they can't find a payphone, and therefore certain things don't happen. But in this film, obviously people have cell phones. It is uh, modern. And the ice provides a way for him to fall and break his phone. And of course, it's Christmas Eve, so there's no way to get it replaced. 
Yeah, and this is yet another terrific Christmas movie. This does kind of uh, play with the season, and it really does play with this whole idea of expectations around the holidays. I mean, so many people are working on Christmas Eve, and they let everybody know how much they don't want to be working on Christmas Eve. I mean, even the strippers at the strip clubs are working on Christmas Eve, and they do not appreciate that whatsoever. Isn't there a couple of strip clubs in here, is there, or is there just one main one? No, there's two. There's the Sugar Shack and... And I can't remember the name of the other one. but The Sweet Trap, isn't it? I think you're right, which is a great name for a uh, strip club, especially when there's a femme fatale working at it, you know? <laughs> and she totally, Connie Nielsen in here as Renata, totally looks like she stepped out of the 1940s. I mean, in terms of her styling and her look and the way she's lit. Oh, yeah. And the, the way that her hair is and the way she smokes a cigarette. I mean, everything. She's like kind of a, Verona, a darker Veronica Lake. Yeah, and so she, I guess, becomes the the interest of of Charlie. He's got this thing where it's like, you know, we should run away together and get out of here. This mean you're rich, Charlie? Because if you are, we could run away together. It's a thought. Hmm. Leaving Wichita. Damn right, it's a thought. Come the first of the year, there will be no more nude dancing in the city, which means I'm fucked. And don't tell me to move out to the county either. Because Bill Gerard's got the county all to himself. And I don't think he's looking for competition. Isn't that right, Charlie? You should let me help you out. If I was real smart, I'd see this as an opportunity. I could, you know. Could what? Help you. You, Charlie. You kind of get the feeling that she's not all that happy to be there either. It's just sort of like circumstances have put her in this place in the middle of america yeah she seems like she'd be much more comfortable in a uh bigger metropolis she seems more like a new york girl or an la girl and here she is stuck in wichita and not too happy about it this leads to a lot of back and forth and tension between them because he obviously wants her to go with him but he can't really tell her what he's up to he doesn't really want to get too many people involved in the fact that he's decided to rip off the boss. Though she guesses it like right away, <laughs> which is pretty great too. There's really no pulling the wool over her eyes. Yeah, she is pretty smart in that way. And then when we talk about the the strip club there, and I can't remember the guy's name, but pretty well known face. You see him in stuff, uh, character actor, and oh, Sydney, yeah, yeah, who's the bartender, and. We get this feeling that him and Charlie have known each other for quite a while, and they've become kind of good friends to the point that um, he – I love that the the bartender, Sydney character, has this like anger management issue, and even with his own mother, because he tells this story about having to put his mom in place, and Charlie's like, Jesus, man. Sydney. Oh. You do hear that siren, right? Yeah. Uh, but Charlie, my blood was up, you know? My mother's always telling me I need to work on my anger, channel my energies into something more positive. Makes me want to slap those silly. Jesus Christ, Sidney, you don't hit your mother, do you? Christ, no. Charlie, I'm talking about desires here. That's all urges and shit. <laughs> yeah, I, that guy, uh, Ned Bellamy, he is absolutely terrific in this role. And it's like, he, I, I wish there was more of him, but at the same time, I think he's in there just the perfect amount. And he plays a role in the end, which is which is kind of interesting and shows that uh, in the end, Charlie's kind of a he's kind of a good guy. He's kind of a sweet guy beyond all of this, uh, 
you know, darkness that he has to deal with being a mob lawyer and, you know, not having such a happy home life and his kids resent him, which is, uh, I, I love this after he runs into Pete played by Oliver Platt, they decide to go home <laughs> to the, uh, to the holiday Christmas dinner. And one has to ask, well, I guess Pete and I guess Charlie's ex-wife, his wife, are kind of on the outs. We, we get the feeling that maybe they're separated or there's something going on because obviously he's out drinking while they're having the family, you know, meal. So they go back home to the house and it's like, oh, great, here, here are these two guys. And I, I just love the interaction uh, with the kids. So, Spence, how you doing? Go to hell. Don't you talk to your father that way. He's not my father. He didn't even send us presents this year. I hate his guts. Is that right, Charlie? You didn't even send him any Christmas presents? No, no, no. Christmas is tomorrow. Guess what, Daddy? I was in the Christmas play. So what? All you were was tying Tim's sister, and you didn't even have any lines, and he didn't even come to watch. He would have, but Mommy didn't send an invitation. I'm sorry, Charlie, but maybe you should go now. And perhaps you would give Pete a ride home? Sarah Beth and the children will be staying here tonight. Okay. Yeah. Since we, I'm going to go and I'm going to come back and visit you tomorrow, right? Don't believe him, Melissa. He's lying. All he ever does is lie. Shut up! Merry Christmas, Charlie. What I really get a feeling is from this scene is that the the mother of the wife is this matriarch, this iron fisted matriarch who just makes everybody's lives miserable and in turn makes her husband's life miserable and he makes everybody else miserable. And it just, this whole dynamic, this unhealthy dynamic is something that Charlie was married into. And now Pete is in and just, they both have this kind of um, empathy around uh, what living in this family is like. So I, I do love the tension that comes up in this scene and just, um, Oh yeah, it's so good. And then the exchange that they have later on when Charlie's saying, you know, when I was married to this woman, she was stepping out with you. Now you're married to her. It just makes me wonder, you know, who's she fucking now? And I love that she's kind of not even involved. That's the thing that's interesting is in this, in this dinner scene, like the kids are there and they talk to both of, uh, Charlie and Pete and the the father-in-law but it's like the wife just can't be bothered she's just like whatever like, she's not, she doesn't even like I don't even think she says a word to him it's it's really interesting how it plays out yeah I really enjoy this I Oliver Platt I used to have a lot of problems with Oliver Platt and I think that's because the first time that I ever saw him he was in Flatliners and after that, I just kept seeing him show up in movies where he was basically playing like a little weasel kind of character. So I, it took me a long time before I finally warmed up to this guy. And I think this was the movie where I warmed up to him, and, which is weird for me because I usually don't like when actors are playing drunk. Like I have had problems like going back and watching like The Doors or other films where you've got people who are just stoned out of their minds through ninety percent of the film, and it's just like, would you clean up your act? You know, or this is a really bad drunk act. But for some reason, Oliver Platt just really nails it for me with this one playing drunk, just playing this down and out husband, this henpecked husband. Just he's 
absolutely miserable and drinking seems to be the only way that he's getting out of it and the only way that he can kind of fortify himself in order to experience this horrific family dinner. I kind of get the feeling that although, you know, I guess in some way they used to be rivals, but that doesn't matter anymore. It's sort of like they've both been through the war together, meaning yeah. that they both were married to the same woman. So therefore they have this, this you know, I understand you know, it's like war vets talking to each other. I always have this little fantasy in my mind of what if Oliver Platt and John Cusack had switched roles in this film? Like Cusack would have been the newer husband because he is he's more attractive of a man. And Platt would have been like the starter husband and Cusack would have been like the upgrade kind of thing. I can almost see like Charlie being um, a little bit more of a schlub and Oliver Platt definitely is more schlubby. Um you know, because Cusack, I mean, the guy, he, he's super handsome. He's hes uh, charming and all this kind of stuff. Platt would have a real hard time, I think, capturing that. But I, I'm not to say that, uh, you know, I, I disagree with the casting on this. I just always wonder what would that have been like had they switched roles. I can see that. As things continue on, he's uh, Charlie's trying to check in from time to time with Vic as to what's going on. Because Vic has the money. He gave him the money to hold on to while he's out doing... You know, whatever they have to do until, I guess, what it is, morning, and then they're supposed to leave in the morning. Is that sort of the plan? Yeah, in the book, they talk a little bit more about that. They're going to drive down to Texas and then take a flight out to New York and then kind of go their separate ways once they get out there. And in this, I don't necessarily get the timeline and what's going to happen when kind of thing. But, yeah, there's definitely um, something. We have to wait until morning before this really can happen. I think it's kind of to keep up appearances a little bit with, like, Vic and his wife and that whole weird relationship as well. I mean, at one point, Charlie comes in, and he's looking for Vic, and he finds a finger and a vice, and it's just like, oh, my God, what's going on? And then he thinks the worst, and there's this whole, you know, him circling, trying to find Vic now. So it's just this great idea of, you know, we stay with Charlie throughout this entire film. There's nothing that we see that Charlie doesn't see, that he experiences, that we, you know, that Charlie doesn't experience. So it's great that he is, you know, we were just locked with this guy so much so that he is a lot of times without information, and thus we are too. That is the thing where he finds the finger is at the uh, the Velvet Touch Massage Parlor, which is another business run by uh, the big boss. And he goes in there, and like I said, he finds his blood and his finger, and then he uh, he's driving around, and then he eventually heads over to Vic's house, and we see this woman, who we find out is Vic's wife, like kneeling in front of the Christmas tree, and it's kind of an odd setup, and we're like, eh, is that normal? And then we come to realize actually she's dead, and it was. Vic, as we said, the basically just a heartless kind of guy taking out his own wife. And then we find out that the finger's not his, but of the Mike Starr character, who's the enforcer that's come to get both of them. And he's locked in a trunk in the garage. <laughs> and this whole exchange and interchange with the trunk and with them trying to get it into the car and everything. I mean, it it devolves a little bit into like kind of a, you know, Abbott and Costello kind of situation, but it is absolutely perfect to take away the tension and ratchet it up at the same time. Hey, Roy! Mm. You still alive in there? Mm. You didn't asphyxiate yet, did you? 
What's that, Roy? Jesus fucking Christ! Damn, I took his gun! Trying to manipulate this trunk into one car. It's not working. They're trying another car. At one point, Mike Starr manages to get his gun out of his... Uh, apparently, he had a holster in his an- on his ankle, and he's shooting out the trunk and everything. <laughs> it's so good. Two, three. We're gonna have to take the door off. It's not gonna fit. You want me to get the Mercedes? Mercedes? What Mercedes? Max wife's small story. Don't ask. There is no way that this thing is gonna fit in a piece of shit Mercedes if it don't go to Lincoln. Uh, they're surprisingly spacious, Vic. I just love the back and forth between them as Billy Bob Thornton's character, Vic, is driving and and uh, Charlie's in the front and he's talking to him and he's like, I can't remember what and the uh, your head is, so, you know, you might want to shut up before I shoot you. <laughs> yeah, Billy Bob, I mean, he really, uh, again, I mean, you, you can't get better performances than you're getting in this film. There's not one weak spot in this. I mean, everybody, all the way down to, you know, T.J. Jagodowski as uh, Officer Tyler, who keeps showing up. I mean, that's another nice tension-building thing, is that at every turn, Charlie's getting pulled over or running into these cops, and you're just like, oh, they are such a presence in this film, you just expect them to show up at the worst time. But the one cop that shows up, he kind of is trying to be a cop, but at the same same time he knows that charlie's connected to the mob and would much rather work for the mob right and that whole thing where he's like trying to get him to remember his name and everything and like covering up his name tag yeah what's the name again yeah <laughs> so good. put in a good word for me will you right as charlie's you know already out you know so it's just like oh god the last thing i want to do is talk to my boss again <laughs> exactly so they um eventually they've got the trunk with the Mike Starr character of the Enforcer, and they, uh, Vic throws his wife in the back in the in the trunk of the car, and they, uh, I, I love the dialogue here where they're. This is the kind of stuff that that makes me laugh. That's just ridiculous sort of Detroit car nonsense, where he's like, "You can't, you can't fit all this in the car." Oh, God gotcha. damn it! I can open the fucking door. <laughs> Okay. Jesus, Charlie, you're right. This thing is spacious. There's no way it would have gone on a Lincoln. Give me the key. Yeah, that is so good. And the whole thing of like, you know, he had, he had the Lincoln, but then he had to get rid of the Lincoln when Oliver Platt threw up in it. So it just adds this whole other thing going on with that. And in the book, you get a lot more of this internal dialogue as Charlie's just like, yeah, this this other car, wow, this handles really well. I wouldn't have thought this handled so well on the ice and everything. And so you have this whole thing of him talking about cars throughout the, the narrative. The plan is to basically toss the trunk and Vic's wife into the local I guess, lake, and they pull them out and start working them toward the pier. And uh, and this is where uh, somehow, was it, uh, 
Mike Starr's character gets out of the trunk. He gets like shoots the lock off or something. Yeah, manages to get out of the trunk. So you have this huge hulking Mike Starr character. <laughs> it's just—I don't even know. They must have done it with just—you uh, know—this is movie magic going on here, where they can fit this hulking guy into this little trunk, and uh, just yeah, him coming out of the trunk and everything is like this uh, almost like Frankenstein monster reveal kind of thing. And uh, yeah, he—he he also he. Um, he shoots Billy Bob Thornton through the trunk, had one bullet left. And it, so that's great where it's just like this whole like who's dead and who's not. And this kind of like uh, uh, tableau at the end of the uh, pier is pretty fantastic. And he uh, I, I just love the way the character Billy Bob Thornton's character reacts where he's just sort of like, oh, great. God damn it, Roy, that was just blind fucking luck, you asshole. Give me a hand, Oglis. All stiff. He's not really upset, it's just sort of like, shit, I got yeah. shot, you know? <laughs> and he's like, well, I guess I gotta shoot you too now. And he shoots him again, and then, um, and then like, the whole pier collapses on him, and they end up everyone ends up falling into the water except for Charlie. And then this is his moment, man. This is where he gets to make his decision. You know, was Vic going to screw him over? Was um, Mike Stark's character's name is Roy. I just remember. Was Roy going to keep his promise and let him live if he, you know, uh, gave back the money or anything? I mean, what, what's going to happen with this? And yeah, the peer collapsing really kind of forces his hand and uh, he makes the decision of, screw everybody else, I'm in it for the money, and off you go. Though he does come back and try to save Vic at one point, but it's just way too late. When I was watching this the first time, I thought, well, you know, I guess that's the end. But then, oh, that's not the end. There's still, like, another 20-odd minutes. Now, that's not to mean that it drags out, but I think that's where, like, most plots would end. It's like, all right, well, the partner's gone, you're man alone now, whatever. But there's still the question of where's the money, and he hasn't been able to figure that out yet. Yeah, it goes back to the car. I think that's what it is. That's why he decides to save Vic. He goes back to the car, looks in the bag where he thinks the money is, finds that it's Vic's dirty shorts, basically, and it's like, oh, shit, yeah. So he goes back and tries to save Vic in order to find where the money's at, and that's not happening. So yeah, now it becomes this whole idea of... Here I am. I've screwed over my boss. I've killed my partner. The hitman sent to kind of collect me. He's dead as well. I don't have the money. The one thing that I wanted out of all of this was the money. Maybe the other thing is that I want the girl, too. I want Renata. So then this last act becomes the whole quest for the money and for Renata. And then those things kind of end up intertwining. Yeah, definitely. And that becomes this whole other... It's like a, a mini film within a film here where it's this whole idea of what does Renata know? How does she tie into this thing? Because like I said before, she immediately is like, oh, well, this is what has happened. And basically, you know, lets him know that she is kind of in on it, but he doesn't necessarily pick up on it that much until later on. Um, so yeah, it's this, this whole thing of getting with her and then at one point, Bill Gerard finally shows up, and then it becomes a matter of saving her because she's 
handcuffed to a chair in her office, and it's a matter of trying to figure out a way that he can get the girl, get the money, and get rid of the boss. So he ends up getting rid of the boss and getting the money, because I don't really think it's explained, but we come to understand that maybe Vic and Renata had a deal. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, they have this nice little flashback where when we first met Vic at the beginning of the film, he's so like, Charlie, what the hell are you doing here kind of thing? And he's doing that to say, you know, we shouldn't be seen together. But at the same time, Renata was at the table right before Vic had or Charlie had shown up. So finally, we get Charlie putting all these pieces together and realizing, oh, Maybe this woman wasn't the vision that I had, and maybe you know I was definitely right about my partner beforehand, but now I know that she was involved as well. So it's nice the way that this all kind of coalesces finally. You know, the light bulb goes off, and again, it's not like one of these characters where you're just like, oh, for God's sakes, can you be smarter and figure this stuff out? They pace it well enough that we, the audience, doesn't necessarily know 100% that she was with Vic, and it's much more of a nice reveal for us as well. So this then brings us to the end and Christmas morning where Pete has been sleeping it off over at uh, Charlie's place, and they end up getting in the car and they're driving off, and Charlie has the money, and then he comes across Sydney, the um, the bartender whose RV is broken down out on the road in the middle of the you know winter tundra of the flatlands there. Do you mind if I get into the book a little bit here? Sure. Okay, well, in the book, it's really kind of nice. Like, I've talked about how we didn't see Vic, and we don't see Bill, and we don't see Roy, really, in the first half of uh, the book. And there are much more of these characters that are being talked about. One other set of characters that's being talked about are Sydney's parents. And there's this whole thing about uh, them wanting to go to Six Flags and basically ruining his Christmas and all this kind of stuff. And it's terrific because... You finally figure out that he runs across this RV on the side of the road, and it's this old couple, and the big reveal is that these were Sydney's parents. So we have yet this other set of characters who were being discussed who now are being shown finally in the, in the, uh, the action of the story. So it was really kind of this nice touch of, of this reveal of these two people. Very nice. So when he finds him out on the, the road there broken down, he uh, he offers to help him because he's run out of gas, and so that way he can get his you know his kids to Six Flags. It's not like you said, not so much dealing with the whole thing of his parents as it is he's borrowed the RV from his parents and they didn't put any gas in it. So um, so it, it's more for the kids, and so he helps him sort of siphon some gas out of his car so he can at least get to the local gas station. And while he's taking care of that, uh, Charlie begins writing the, uh, the the phrase that features over and over and over again in this film. Early on in the movie, Charlie goes into the restroom and he sees written on the wall, As Wichita falls, so falls Wichita falls. And it's kind of nice because we get that a few times in the movie and it's other people who have gone into the bathroom and have come out and repeat that, or they talk about this graffiti that they've seen. And we don't necessarily know that it's Charlie who's 
done the graffiti until the very end when he has a, a, a Sharpie and he starts writing that on the back of Sydney's uh, RV. Sydney, who's apparently not real skilled at driving this RV because he has to put it in reverse before he goes forward and takes out Charlie on the road. And um, But luckily, Charlie gets up, goes back to his car, a little worse for wear, and that's when Oliver Platt pops up because I wasn't aware that he was in the car at all. So it's kind of nice, like, oh, it's Charlie and and Pete, and they're together, which is this really kind of nice feeling of great, you know, Pete's getting away from this horrible situation. And it seems like they are going to have a good time, a good life. They've got the money, and they can head off onto the road into the sunset. And that's how this version of the film ends. But there are several different endings for this film that were featured on the uh, deleted scenes, one of which includes when he gets backed over by the RV, he ends up dying. And there's this flashback uh, sequence also in there to an earlier time between him and Vic. And, and then that's the end of the film. And then I think there's even like a third possible ending for this. I haven't seen the endings in a long time. So I just remember the book ending, which is the RV does the same thing. It's the it's Sydney's folks. They back up, um, run over Charlie, basically. And uh, then they pull off. And uh, actually, no, I take that back. They stop. They, f- they hear that they hit something. They go back. They see Charlie's basically dead body they find the money and they take the money and they go so he's left without anything and he's just basically dead on the side of the road very nice <laughs> very dark very very dark especially compared to the the much more sunnier ending that we get in the the at least on the dvd version yeah so why don't we take a break and actually play an interview with the author of the novel of the ice harvest scott phillips after these brief messages Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Mathematics of murder and menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh, us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these <laughs> exploitation, horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. 
You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. <laughs> People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ugh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy sexy piece of lingerie or anything you desire just enter offer code booth at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts go check out adamandeve.com today select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code booth that's b-o-o-t-h at adamandeve.com This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Christopher Media, The Weedsman Podcast. Cures rickets, polio, conjunctivitis, AIDS. AIDS. <laughs> It's just go hog wild. Be in the car accident, you just use a little bit, you'll be fine. Yeah, rub it on your car and yourself. <laughs> It'll fix your car and your bones. <laughs> Try this special trick to get out of traffic tickets with Rick Simpson oil. Rub it on the cop. It'll just go away. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast. Every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, WHMPodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode that drops us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday. I'm curious, which came first? Was it the screenwriting or the novel writing? Kind of hard to answer because um, I I got paid first as a screenwriter, but I, I became a screenwriter 
when I became discouraged with uh, trying to write a, a, a very bad novel um, that never saw the light of day, and for which I'm very grateful. <laughs> and um, I had written, I wrote a book called Rake, which kind of an exaggerated version of how I got into screenwriting. Um, my friend Lane Davies was a very well-known uh, television actor in France, and uh, we tried to make a movie. I, I had been writing a novel, and he convinced me that we should try to make a movie because he was very well known at the time in in, in France. And uh, so we tried to do that; it was disastrous. Um, but it was, you know, I, I convinced myself that I was a decent screenwriter, and he convinced me that I should move to LA, which I did. And worked worked a little bit that that day for this thing and that thing that didn't get made, and finally I did get one made that um, was not an entirely satisfactory experience. And uh, so when I was done with that, I thought, you know, the hell with it, I'm going back to writing fiction. And uh, I was so set up with working with and under other people that I decided I would just write something to please myself. And I had been reading a lot of uh, hard work, crime stuff, and a lot of noir. And um, so I, I sat down in... Uh, started writing a novel and that was the first you know, that was the first inkling that other people sort of like the same things I did. So was that the ice harvest? That, that was the ice harvest, yeah. And uh you know, and I've gone back and forth ever since. But uh I think, you know, I've had more success with, with novels, but um you know, they both have their appeal. You you get sick of one and you do the other. So when it came to uh the ice harvest, what was your inspiration for that? Well, the opening scene in the book uh, is uh, the, the Charlie Argus, the lawyer, walking into a bar on Christmas Eve and, and witnessing a man, a drunk, catch his hair on fire, which is something I really saw. Once I walked into a bar one afternoon, and a guy was at the bar and he was so drunk he caught his hair on fire, and the bartender took his cigarettes and his matches away. But she gave him another drink, and I thought that was funny, and I... I thought, well, you know, I'll write that. And I kept trying to write it. And uh, it always came out in first person and it never worked. And then one day, you know, I, I thought when I had decided I was going to go back to writing fiction, I, I took this story and I tried writing it in in third person. And I uh, I decided that the guy was a lawyer and that he was dropping off an envelope when this guy catches his hair on fire. And... Um, I had a specific bar in mind, the bar where this thing actually happened. And uh, once that scene was gone, I had him get into his car, and it was Christmas Eve. I knew it was snowing, and uh, I didn't know where this guy was going. I didn't know what had been in that envelope. But uh, I I had to have him go someplace, and uh, so I had him go to a strip club. And uh, it, was a, it was a base, it was loosely on a real place. Um, that a friend of mine used to attend bar at. And once I got him there, I had a few other characters pop up and a plot began to, to develop. And, and I decided that this guy was on his way out of town, that he had a very short span of time that he was going to spend in this place where he's lived basically his whole life. And he's, he's leaving because he's done something wrong. And he's, people are going to find out about this thing very soon. And, um, that I, I knew that by the end of the book, people would be after him. And I didn't really know how it was going to end. And uh, the plot just sort of developed as I wrote it. 
it's interesting the way that the plot kind of plays out in that you have the, the two halves to the novel, and especially kind of who you're dealing with in the first half versus the second half. Did that just kind of come about organically? Sort of, yeah. I wrote the first half. The first half took me a while to write. I think it took me about a year because I was working on it in fits and starts and working on other things. And um, the second half, I showed it to... Uh, I, I told my agent at the time that I was working on um, a novel and I wasn't sure if I was going to finish it. And he said, oh, finish the novel, man. It's, you know, it's much easier to sell a novel than it is to sell a effect screenplay. Well, uh, I sat down and and wrote the second half relatively short amount of time. I don't know how long it took, maybe maybe three months, two, three months. And uh, one notion was that the second half was going to be, you know, things things going really wrong. And the first half was going to be just the guys pulling around and he's kind of dealing with, all right, I'm saying goodbye to this place, I'm saying goodbye to these people. And then so the second half would be sort of after midnight. And in the first half of the book, one thing that happens is every chapter somebody gives Charlie a drink. And in the second, the second half, every every chapter he's trying to get a drink, but nobody will give him one. And uh, and that's just kind of the, the that's the sign to Charlie that things are going wrong because he's you know he's a, they, they don't really play this up in the film so much, but Charlie's a pretty serious alcoholic. <laughs> I, I like all of the characters that get talked about so much in the first half of the book that you never really see until the second half. Yeah. Um, Vic Kavanaugh and uh, he's, he's, well, I guess he just seems like a little bit, but um, yeah, I, I kind of like, I kind of like presenting these characters and having, having them in the back of my mind for a while before I actually put them on stage. And, you know, some of these characters I've, I've used again. Um, I don't know what it is about these, these secondary characters that I like so much. But, uh, I, I often find them more uh, fun to deal with than, than the, the protagonist. You sit down, you write the book, or you're halfway through, you talk to your agent. How long after it gets out there, um, you know, was it an easy sell, or, or how was that whole process for you? It was a really surprisingly easy sell. I had no idea. I really intended to write it. When I was writing it, I, I thought I had, I, I really had one avenue. I wanted to publish it in France. My friend uh, Patrick Renal at the time was the editor of the Sainte uh, the Noir uh, in France, which is a, a collection published by Gallimard. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, I think Patrick would, would publish this, and I would like to have a book out in the Pacific Lab. And, um, you know, so I was doing that and thinking, you know, well, I'll make a, you know, I'll make a little bit of money and I'll, and I'll be able to tell myself that, you know, I got a book in this big French series. And, and uh, you know, I thought maybe somebody would publish it in paperback. But um, I got a new film agent, and she sent it to an agent in New York, and this agent in New York. I, I in the meantime, I had Dennis McMillan had arranged to publish a uh, a paperback of a thousand. He was going to do a thousand copies of a paperback. And in the meantime, so I get this agent and in New York, and she says, "Well, it's a shame it's coming out in a commercial edition because I could, but I could sell this in New York." So I called Dennis and said, "Dennis, I'm not going to, you know, scotch your deal, but uh, this agent says she could sell it in." New York, so he 
he agreed to for a small, you know, for a percentage of of my uh, advance from the New York publisher. He agreed to, to drop his edition, and he did a limited edition of the book. And uh, you know, it just I had a lot of forum sales, and uh, the book just really took off in a way that I had never expected and still don't quite understand. I mean, it, I haven't had another book that, you know, I've written uh, 700 books, which I think are all just as good, but nobody, uh, none of them has had the impact that that one did. How long after it came out did the did it get optioned? It got optioned really fast. There were there were two serious bids. One was for quite a bit more money than, than I settled for because, uh, I, you know, somebody wanted to make it, and I looked at his films, and I go, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not crazy about any of this guy's movies. Um, and he's, he was kind of a big deal filmmaker, and uh, he wanted to option it for his son to direct. And I thought, yeah, you know. And I, I looked at this other offer, which was a lot less money, but I looked, and I just loved all these guys' movies. They'd been from and uh, Election, and uh, King of the Hill, which was filmed in St. Louis. And, you know, and I just thought, you know, I really like what these guys do. And, you know, I think they would, I, I, I feel very comfortable that they would, you know, be, be true to the material. And I was I was glad I did, because they, they really, they work really hard getting it, uh, getting it put together. And um, we have a company called Bonafide productions and um, they have since done things like Little Sunshine and um, you know they they do a lot of so they did Nebraska last year which I thought was a great movie. And Albert Albert Berger and Ron Yerkes are their names and they uh you know they they uh they make real good movies. And a funny thing is that uh their their um, intern at the time uh was uh Teresa Schwagel who you might know, she's a novelist. She wrote uh, Oh, Person of Interest, Officer Down. Her last book was The Good Boy, which I think is a terrific hot novel. She writes these really, really amazing Chicago hot novels. But at the time, she was, you know, she was working for them. That's how I got to know her. How did uh, Harold Ramis come into the picture? Well, he came in very late. Um, they were, they were originally, uh, Robert Benton was going to direct it. And he and Richard Russo had, had collaborated, collaborated sorry, on the screenplay. And then, you know, they were looking at the budget and then just felt like, you know, he needed more time to make the movie. He, I think that it was a five-week shoot, if I remember correctly, but he, and he felt like he needed a couple of weeks more than that. And he, you know, he... He has his way of making movies, and he, he said, you know, he just didn't feel like he could make the movie he wanted to make in that time. So he he stepped out of the director's chair, and in the meantime, you know, there were several people, um, several people were considered. Um, Ed Harris was interested in doing it, and I, I would have loved to have seen his, his take on it. Uh, he had, we had some interesting back and forth. He, he really wanted to put that opening scene with the guy catching his hair on fire back. He really wanted to film that. Um, uh, Sidney Pollack uh, was going to do it for about a weekend. He, he, he uh, On Friday, he went home thinking, I'm going to do this. And then Monday, he came in and said, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do it. And apparently that was the way Sidney 
that I'm operating, I can get very passionate about a project and then just kind of not into it. Um, trying to remember who else was. Uh, Bill Paxton actually approached me through uh, Scott Smith very early on and um, was interested in, in optioning it, but it had already been optioned at that point, and I think he wanted to produce as well as, as direct and, and star. Um, but Harold came in very late. Uh, I was talking to Benton on the phone one day, and I think it was it was March, and he said, uh, he said, well, it looks like we're, we're, it looks like we're, we're greenlit. And I said, what? what are you, that's crazy. It's, it's March already. You know, Snow in March, and he said, "You know, it's a, it's the movie. We, we do fake snow." And uh, so, sure enough, and I, I uh, right right then, uh, Harold Ramos had just uh, gotten attached to it, and through Harold, we got uh, John Cusack, and that was enough for uh, for focus. And they uh, they greenlit us, and we were off and running. So sadly, Harold passed away this year. What do you? Do you remember yeah. working with him? Oh, he was he was a really really wonderful sweet guy. He was uh, he. I think the, the the best thing I can say about Harold is he was exactly the way you would want him to be. You know, he was if you imagine what what Harold Ramos would be like, he was like that. He was very very funny, very nice, uh, incredibly smart. Uh, very, very well-read guy. You know, he just, uh, he, he, like a lot of directors, he was, he, although he, you know, he was a very well-educated guy, he was also sort of not a didact, and he had a lot of, a lot of esoteric, um, broad interests, and uh, just a great guy to talk to, and, uh, you know, very generous. I asked him one time to come out and do a, uh, a benefit for the St. Louis County Library, and he came out on his own dime, and, you know, you know, spent a weekend in in St. Louis doing uh, you know a promotion for the St. Louis County Library, and he's just uh, you know I really liked him a lot. I was I was very sad when he when he died. What did you think about the adaptation and the two writers who did it? I was very pleased with it. You know, it, it's funny because I I a couple of years ago, Jack Ayers and I did an adaptation of William Day's novel, The Long Home. Uh, which is a book that I really love, and um, it's—I I think it's the best thing I have ever worked on in screenplay format. I mean, it just—it really—I felt like it was a very good adaptation, and it was very true to the book in all the important ways. And it, you know, it—it it, it turned it into a, a you know a shorter story, which it has to do for a movie. But it was very interesting to me that the, my reaction to it was very similar to my reaction to reading the adaptation, because I was reading it draft by draft. I don't think I read every single draft, but they would send me a draft and say, well, what do you think? And which, which they didn't really have to do contractually. And they would send me a draft and I would, you know, put my two cents in without ever getting too, you know, because it's not my script. It's and, but occasionally I would get this funny thing where I would, I would, there would be a line that wasn't from the book and I would think, well, but that's not in my book. You know, I would get momentarily very intense, and um, and and then I would come across a line that was straight out of the book, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't write that. Bruce didn't write that. I wrote that. They're getting paid for you know." And it was this you know silly irrational thing. Uh, and when I when we did the long home, when Jed and I did the long home, I had the exact same feeling in reverse. I would get this terrible guilt feeling anytime I put something in that wasn't from the novel. 
And I would get this terribly guilty feeling every time I I put a line in verbatim because, well, William Gay wrote I don't that. I can't put my name on this. So it was a very, it's a very funny, fraught process. And of course, I was lucky enough to be adapted by two of the best screenwriters in, in you know, in, in the business. Um, and you know, those guys, you know, I was, originally I was going to write the screenplay. And uh, they called me up one day and it hadn't been, you know, it hadn't been contractually established, but they, they, they were interested in me doing it. And one day they called me and said, hey, uh, you know, we kind of have a situation here. Uh, Robert Benton and Richard Russo want to get involved and they want to, you know, Benton wants to direct and they want to adapt it together. And I, I said, well, you know, I don't, I, I, I would be disappointed not to be able to write it, but I don't see how we could turn that down. You know, I mean, Benton's got, Benton has won people a whole bunch of Oscars um, and, uh, you know, their work together is just fantastic. I mean, you know, uh, nobody's full, and I don't think Empire Falls had done yet, but eventually, you know, they did Empire Falls, and they, they're, they're an amazing team. So, uh, and of course, with my name on it, there's no guarantee that anybody in town is going to read it. But with Menton's name on it, every actor in town is going to want to read it. And so that was, that was kind of a, that was kind of a, an easy choice. You know, disappointing in a way, but uh, I don't know that the thing would have gotten made with, with just my name on it. You're in a pretty unique uh, position here, being a, a screenwriter, now novelist, and then seeing your own work adapted. Did you have ideas that they completely changed that, you know, I would have done it this way, and they just went against that? The one thing that I kept lobbying for, and I, I still regret this, was I wanted to end the film with uh, Charlie's body lying there on the pavement, and um, Roy Rogers and Dale Evans' version of I'll Be Home for Christmas. Uh, and I just, I still get chills up my spine when I listen to that record because it's, it's very creepy and sad. Uh, and I kept pushing for this and Harold would go, do you know how many people are calling me on the phone every day with music suggestions? And I said, no, but really listen to this. <laughs> and I, it didn't happen. But if I ever got the chance to recut the film, uh, the two things I would do is I would restore Harold's original ending and I would put um, I'll Be Home for Christmas by Roy Rogers and Dale Evans over the, uh, over the uh, closing shot. Yeah, what is the story with that original ending? Because I remember watching that at Noircon years ago and I couldn't remember which one was the original and which one wasn't until I watched it on DVD and I'm like, this isn't what I remember. Well, um, the, 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 the original ending was the ending of the book and I don't know if I'm supposed to I, I shouldn't say what that is but it's a darker ending and they showed it to um, some test audiences and the test audiences were horrified they loved the movie the, 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 gen, the general gist of the little postcards that you fill out at the end was loved the movie hated the ending you know and um, and so they, they forced them to reshoot it with a happier ending and uh, nobody wanted to do it except the, you know, the, the, the studio. And, you know, they, they and the problem with relying on market research for a movie like this, it, it's market research is fine. It's the same way they do it. But for a movie like this, a, a, a small 
independent, more or less independent, like saying the studio. He was finessed by Focus Features, which is uh, has a, a distribution distribution deal with Universal. But with a small movie like this, a dark crime movie, a funny dark crime movie, a film noir, you can't just go into a mall and stop, you know, flag strangers down and say, would you like to see a movie? Because that's not who goes to movies like this. And, you know, most people are, by and large, going to say, yeah, I loved it until, you know, they ran over Josh's hat. And uh, so I, I think the people who the people who would have come to see it, um, you know, I think it could have gotten some good word of mouth if you won't believe the ending of this movie. Uh, but uh, also they, they, they marketed it. There, were, there, were, there was a lot of trouble deciding how to market it. And what they eventually decided to go with was, you know, uh, Wacky Buddy Comedy by the, you know, director of Daddy Shack and, you know, and, and that's not what it was. I mean, the commercial, the trailer, you know, everything was a pratfall and it's a big, you know, all the funny stuff with Cusack and, uh, and all of their plan. And, and that stuff's in the movie and it's great and it's funny. When you see the trailer, you don't get any, you know, people see this thing and they're expecting to see a buddy comedy. And, you know, instead they've got blood dripping on Christmas presents and, you know, John Cusack drowning Billy Bob Thornton and, you know, Mike Starr getting shot and all this violent stuff and a guy getting his fingers broken in the parking lot. And I think the people who went expecting a buddy comedy walked away horrified. And the people who who went to, who would have gone to see the, the bloody dark black comedy, you know, didn't go because they, they, they weren't being advertised to. So a lot of questions about tone and, and when they changed the ending, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it happens. What did you think about the cast? I love the cast. Um, uh, I think it's a really extraordinarily well cast movie. Um, and, a lot of the smaller roles are are really well filled. Um, the uh, you know Oliver Platt is it was an interesting thing about Oliver Platt because he you know he's a fairly minor character in the book but he becomes a fairly uh, he becomes a fairly major character in the movie and Billy um, Bob Thornton I don't know if he read the script or not. <laughs> Because he um, he said to Harold when he saw the movie, um, he said, "Oh, I I if I'd known I was going to be the third banana, I thought I was going to be the second banana. If I'd known I was going to be the third banana, I wouldn't have done it." Um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, he's incredibly funny in the movie, and 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 some of the like I said, some of the minor characters, uh, Ned Bellamy who plays Sydney, the bartender. Is maybe very different from what I imagined, um, because in in my version, Sydney is this kind of well, Sydney looked like Mike Starr in 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 my in my imagination, and Bellamy's version is very different. Uh, but he's very good. He's very funny. Mike Starr, Connie Nielsen, who I got to be pretty good friends with uh, while we were promoting this thing. She's a really really um, really nice lady. Um, P.J. Jagodowski, who plays the cop, and David Pesquese, who uh, have a, they work together in theater up in Chicago. They're both Second City guys. Um, 
that's where he plays the city councilman. And, you know, it's just, it's a really, it's a really good cast. And, uh, Tuesday had actually been offered the role early on and had turned it down. But when Harold decided he was going to do it, you know, they wanted to work together. So that's how we got Tuesday. And I think he's very good. And it's interesting, though, there were a very wide range of actors who were considered for or were interested in, in doing that part. Um, we had Sam Rockwell at one point. Um, and at one point, actually, that's, that's why I left California. At one point, we had uh, oh, Diane Lane as Renata and Bruce, um, uh, Bruce Willis as Vic. And I don't remember who was Charlie at that time. <laughs> it's kind of funny because we had a bunch of different Charlies attached at various points when the film was going to get made. And, and, and we were very, very, very close to going into production. I mean, you know, uh, very, very close. And then at the very last second, um, Bruce Holmes dropped out. And the whole thing just collapsed. And uh, I said to my wife, you know, I think I need to get out of California. I think... I think, you know, because I'd already spent some of that money and I was just, yeah, here we go. And, uh, you know, it was, it, was, uh, it was a funny thing. It was a funny business. When you're writing these characters, I know you were thinking, like, bigger guy for Sidney the bartender. Were you thinking of, like, handsome John Cusack for the main character? Uh, you know, really, Charlie was always me. I think that's one reason that the audiences were so upset when, uh, one reason people loved it in the book, the ending, uh, and I think that that's because people were experiencing Charlie as as me, as the author, and they were perfectly happy to see that guy run over and dead. And but when it's John Cusack, and he's just spent an hour and a half with John Cusack, and he's this charming, you know, handsome guy, they don't want to see him killed. Uh, but in you know, in my mind, it was always just sort of a version of me. Um, I remember uh, Rick Russo said at one point um, we had given it to Steven Soderbergh and and, and uh, George Clooney, and they were you know uh, Rod and Albert were really pretty pretty you know they were pretty pretty much into the idea of getting Clooney, and uh, Rick Russo said in a meeting he said well the thing about Charlie is he's the kind of guy who can walk into a bar. And nobody notices. And Ron said, "Well, so much for Clooney." Um, but yeah, I just and the thing is, he's such to me, he's such an interior character that really almost any actor of a certain age could could do it. I mean, I, I really love the idea of Ed Harris um, being Charlie. I think that would have been a really interesting take on it, um, a darker take. Now, Harold's take is pretty dark, but I think it's the darkest movie he ever made, and I. I think he just he he was kind of excited about making something that was a a little bit he wasn't you know humorless but it was very much outside of what he, he usually um, he usually did and uh, you know it's a it's it's an interesting question because I there were so many actors that they would say you know so and so's interested in be, oh yeah he'd be perfect so you know I'd say anybody between thirty five and fifty five. You know, of a certain type, you know, could have done that. Renata seemed a little bit different as far as the whole idea of her being from this mysterious foreign land. I mean, they kind of mention, you know, they have the question of 
where are you from at one point, but yeah. I don't think really does Connie's not necessarily doing an accent in that. She is a little bit. I mean, if you hear her speak English, she, she, she sounds American and she's really interesting because she also sounds, when she speaks French, she sounds perfectly French. Um, she's really good with accents. I think she didn't, she wasn't overdoing it. It was, it was just sort of a vague kind of a rhythmic thing, um, that she was doing. And, uh, but in, yeah, in, in my, in the book, she's very much an enigma. And, uh, I, it was interesting because I, I really thought Connie nailed it just kind of in the physicality of the part. She really, she really had this thing of this beautiful and cold person who you almost couldn't believe that she might warm up just for you. She definitely had that kind of forbidden fruit thing going on. Yeah. And the interesting thing about Connie, I think, is that she she really is, deep down, she's a character actor. You know, and it doesn't always get recognized because she is very beautiful. But uh, she's very different in every role, I think. And I've seen her in things where I have to kind of look at her, is that Connie? Um, and she's, you know, she's, but she's, she's very beautiful. So people just think, oh, she got the role because she's beautiful. And then, and then. But she's really an interesting actor. I think she's really, a, uh, she's really got a lot of, uh, got a lot of skill. When it came to the actual shooting in the film, I know sometimes, you know, the writers of the book are just not necessarily welcome on set. Were you around? I was actually, I had, uh, you know, I'd heard from, you know, when they made, uh, blood work. Uh, Eddie Foote invited Michael Connolly to the set, and, and uh, you know I, he watched some shooting, and they had lunch, and then Clint, Clint said, "All right, now, now's the part where you leave and you don't come back." <laughs> <laughs> and and I thought, okay, I get it. I, and he was fine, but Mike, it's a funny story, but uh, you know, uh, and I thought, okay, that's the way it is. I'm going to accept that before I go. I'm going to go, and they they I went to the on set one evening, and a lot of night shoots. And I met everybody, and um, you know, and I, I, I said, um, you know, I had a good time. I got to tour the set, and it was really, an amazing, you know, set design in that movie. That whole uh, massage parlor, which is a pretty short sequence, they built an entire massage parlor in a soundstage, um, and it's just, it's, it was surreal walking through it because you're one minute you're in a very large building. And the next minute, you're in the sleaziest massage parlor you've ever seen. Uh, not that I've seen that many. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, and so I, you know, walked around and Cusack, uh, you know, I talked to Cusack for a while, talked to Billy Bob and spent some time with Harold. And then, and then I split. And apparently Harold had something else he wanted to show me. And he came out and said, hey, where's Scott? I want to show him something. And they said, he left. Is he, he left already? And he said, yeah, and he said, of his own volition? And I said, yeah, he just he said, uh, well, thanks for showing me around, tell everybody goodbye, and he left. And that just surprised me so much that they just, because I hadn't criticized anything, I hadn't complained, I hadn't, you know, offered any advice that wasn't asked. And uh, so the result of that was I got to hang around as much as I wanted, um, which was really nice. It was fun. Uh, and everybody was very friendly and, and uh yeah, it was a good time. I, I got to, as I say, I got to know, I got to know Harold pretty well, and I got to know Connie. Although that was that was after the shooting because we were, you know, it was, uh, 
promotion and stuff uh, over in Europe, and um, and uh, Harold's uh, producing partner uh, Laurel Ward, who's just a lovely person. Uh, got to be friends with her, and um, yeah, I mean, it was really fun to watch. I was curious, how did they shoot the um, the, the icy pond or the icy lake scene? <laughs> That was very interesting. That was uh, that's paraffin. That's actually not ice. It's paraffin floating in a, a giant tank, and the, the, the entire sequence was filmed indoors. And uh, Billy Bob Thornton was terrified that he was that he's, he's very afraid of drowning. And um, and Harold said, yeah, he was he was really really a lot of, a, and I think he's wonderful in that scene because he really he really does not like being in the water. Yeah, he, he does play it very well. When they shot it, I mean, how did they do some of that stuff as far as like what uh, the uh, the car sliding and all that kind of stuff? Was that just movie magic? Uh, well, the car sliding, there was a lot. You know, there were some second unit things filmed on on the streets of uh, suburban Chicago. It was actually Waukegan where they filmed most of it, most of the exteriors. And uh, a lot of the interviews, you know, when Charlie and uh, Vic are in the car, that is on a soundstage. Uh, the, the lights are all, you know, the passing cars and et cetera are all, um, you know, electronics. Just people walking with, uh, with lights. Uh, there, uh, and Mike Starr is supposedly in the back seat in the, uh, in the trunk, and he's actually just off. He was there, and and it, his voice is being recorded, you know, in real time, but he's, he's just off stage rather than actually putting him in the trunk, which uh, Mike is a very big guy, and I don't think you're going to actually be able to fit him in the trunk. I think, I think that was kind of part of Harold's idea in casting him was just the notion that you could fit this really big guy in the trunk. Have you had any of your other books uh, optioned? No, actually Rake, which was the one about uh, the, uh, the actor in Paris running around trying to get a movie made and, and killing people, uh, very nearly got made into a TV series. It was originally, I actually wrote it originally for French television. Um, Patrick Greenhall was, was working on a series of books that were all going to be turned into TV movies, and it, they ended up all getting published, but not only two of them got made into movies, TV movies, and so uh, my agent got it out, and uh, there was a, you know, a fair amount of interest in turning it into a, a TV series, but it just sort of didn't happen. And, uh, you know, these things are kind of lightning in a bottle. And how did you kind of get this connection with France? It's a long story. I was uh, in a sister cities program when I was a teenager and went over there. And uh, when I was, uh, I was 19, I, I was a student there for the summer when I was 18 uh, with Pittsburgh State University. And um, that probably would have been the end of it, except that when I was in college, one of my um, when I was 19, my, one of my professors said, hey, you want a job? And uh, I guess they thought I was older than I was because uh, they, they gave me a job as a residential advisor in a, in a dormitory. And I also managed the uh, the cafeteria in the dorm. And uh, so with that, I started working there. I just went over and, uh, and I got another job a couple of years later doing something similar in, uh, in Strasbourg. So... Uh, and then in 1988, I just you know didn't go back. At the end of the summer, I just stayed. Very cool. What are you working on now? 
working on a couple of things. I'm working on a, uh, with Jet Ayers, I'm working on a horror film that I hope will be shot in St. Louis. Uh, a kind of a low budget, lowish budget thing, but not, not zero budget. And uh, I am about halfway through a novel set in contemporary Southern California about art forgery and, uh, and the best trade and how they go together. Thanks to Scott Phillips for coming on the show. You can find out more about his work and uh, all that kind of good stuff at our website, projection-booth.com. So, yeah, I've talked a lot about the differences between the book and the film, and Scott definitely talked a lot about that as well. Um, I do have to say that this movie was very faithful to the spirit of the ice harvest, and there are pieces of things that just basically come right out of the book. I mean, the changes that were made between book and screen, I think definitely work. Scott had experience as a screenwriter, but I don't think he was writing The Ice Harvest with the idea of this is a script. So uh, he was able to do a lot of different things that wouldn't have necessarily worked on screen. I mean, we talked about Harry Lyme and how you don't see him after all this time, and that works with Phil Gerard and, and in the movie that we don't necessarily see him. Sorry, I said Phil Gerard. I mean Bill Gerard. I'm thinking of like the one-armed man from uh, the uh, um, the Fugitive or something. So, um, but it's nice that uh, it, it, they took some of these other characters that you heard about so often and kind of sprinkled them through the, the film and set us up a little bit earlier, especially with that relationship between Charlie and Vic. So I, I think that they did a really nice job of adapting this work. When you look at this movie, it, and I think we talked about it on our noir series in November about a, a little bit about sort of like neo-noirs. And we definitely talked about it uh, on our Reservoir Dogs episode over a year ago. This seems like this would have been done, to be honest, in that raft of neo-noir films that came out in the 90s. This feels like something that got held over 10 years later compared to what we got back then. Uh, I would say the one difference between The Ice Harvest and all of that stuff that came out in the mid to late 90s was a lot of that was Tarantino clones. And I don't feel this has any Tarantino aspect. No, thank God. I mean, we don't get any pithy pop culture references. I kind of like that this movie is, even though it is very much set in Wichita, uh, you don't necessarily get this whole idea of place or time. I mean, it was good that the book was set in the late 70s. This has moved up to 2005, whenever the, the movie was released. So, But it, yet it f has a little bit more of a timeless kind of feel to it. Yes, there are cell phones. Yes, there are mod modern vehicles and everything. But it's not really like this is this particular year and you know that it is this year. It has more of this time, a kind of timeless quality. It doesn't have these pop culture references that the Tarantino clones would have. I mean, it's not like, you know, when uh, Charlie is, is looking for gifts for his kids that he's going to put under their Christmas tree that he has to find like the one particular toy that was popular in 2005. So thank God that this doesn't have that rhythm of the Tarantino clones. 
So that's kind of what I like about it is it sort of seems to be its own thing in its own time. The thing that was kind of puzzling to me watching it is the fact that I don't even remember this coming out or really getting much attention on its release. No, I barely remember this. And, you know, Scott talks a lot about that whole idea of this being sold as a comedy. And, yeah, I said before, there are some laugh-out-loud moments to it. It's it's definitely got some humor to it, but it's this dark humor, you know. It reminded me, when they were trying to sell this thing, it reminds me of that, money, that movie, I think it was Money for Nothing, that... Um, Cusack was in like in the early 90s where he finds a bag of money and that's more like I won't say that that's zany but that's kind of more like the the way that this movie was being sold and it's just like yeah this really isn't working for me you know it, it just um, I barely remember the commercials but those that I do I just had no uh, desire to see this and then you know, even when my friend Lou sent me a copy of it on DVD, it's just like, yeah, this looks pretty good, and I trust Lou's opinion and everything. But, you know, it, it just something about it was kind of turning me off. And then when I saw that Oliver Platt was in it, I was like, ah, I really don't like this guy. So it took a lot to win me over, but, you know, won me over enough that we're talking about the movie now. For me, there was like three main elements that should have been just marketing department distributor you know, heaven is Harold Ramis, who you could, you know, attach any of the many films that he had done or was in and had done well with. And this was only, what, five years out, maybe, from, as you were saying, Analyze This, which was a big hit, late 90s, early 2000. And then Cusack and Billy Bob Thornton, I think, would do pretty well as well, you know? So I have no idea why this thing didn't get much attention. Maybe they just had some bad screenings and they're like, yeah, the audience isn't digging this, so we're not putting any money in it. Yeah, maybe people thought that this was going to be a sequel to Pushing Tin. Possible, since they were both in that as well. You know, <laughs> I, which, which I can't necessarily think of a worse movie idea ever. <laughs> I mean, Pushing Tin, not very good. I don't think I ever made it even all the way through that movie. So the idea of a sequel to it, I think, would have been um, pretty bad. Yeah, I I can't even remember anything about that if I even saw it. So, but had they marketed this more as you know, because I won't say that this is a fantastic film, but I know a lot of people like this, and I kind of liked it at the time. If they had played a little bit more on like the gross point blank kind of angle, as far as you know, Cusack can do neo noir, and they really needed to kind of more tune up the whole idea of this is a mystery and with this sultry woman and all this kind of idea rather than wacky comedy look at the trouble these guys get in on think on christmas eve isn't it funny you know i just it, it, that was bad well i think maybe as i was saying putting harold ramus name on it and saying it's a thriller just mm -hmm. those, just the math on that doesn't seem to add up because I think in most people's mind, they go, the guy who did Caddyshack, the guy who was Egon in Ghostbusters, the guy who did Analyze This, like, how how can you do a crime film? I'll give you a, I'll give you an example. I went and saw Rosewater recently, the, um, the movie that Jon Stewart did, who everyone knows from The Daily Show. And I walked out of it, and I saw, you know, was there with a friend of mine, and I turned to her and I said, you know, this is probably going to sound really bad, but that movie is way better than it deserves to be. I'm like, <laughs> given the fact that he wrote it and directed it. I'm like, because I didn't expect anything like that coming from Jon Stewart, of all people. 
And I think that maybe that was the issue where it was like, all right, we can't really go, hey, it's a thriller by this guy because nobody knows him for doing thrillers. Right. Well, yeah, I think that's one of the unfair things is that we mark people as you are a comedic person, a comedic director, a comedic writer, and we don't necessarily think that they can kind of come out of that. And it's it's sad to me that comedy is thought of below like thrillers or any other genre you know it's like because good comedy we know is really tough to do so it that should almost be seen at the the high end of the echelon but unfortunately there are too many like dumb boob comedies out there where it's just like yeah you don't necessarily have to be smart to do any of those uh you know superhero movie epic movie date movie any of those kind of things in fact you're pretty much bottom of the barreling there but then to do a really smart comedy you got to be all the way you know you got to be on your game man you can't make air airplane if you're slacking that's right let's go ahead and uh, take another break and play a preview for next week's show i've been down here too long it's time for me to ascend from the sewers of gotham a new villain emerges right we're going to wish the detective a happy 75th birthday and close out the year with a discussion on batman returns but i'm sure we'll talk about all kinds of other batman goodness along the way as well so don't miss it 
Before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest, Scott Phillips, for coming on the show. And you can find out more about his book, The Ice Harvest, and all the other stuff he has going on at projection-booth.com. We want to thank everybody for listening. If you want to see what we have coming up, visit our Facebook page or download our free app for your smartphone or your Kindle Fire. It is free. No need to steal it. And remember, as Wichita Falls, so falls Wichita Falls. Christmas is the best time of the year. I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan on me. Please have snow and mistletoe and presents on the trees Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams I'll be home for Christmas if only Plan on me. But listen, I would shut the fuck up right now. Mm. Yeah. Hey, sporty nuts. Pete, um, if you don't get laid tonight, fish necklace or no, it's because you're not trying, my son. Pete, I hope you're listening to me. And if you play your cards right, this hot-ass little Jesus freak just might initiate you into the campus crusade for cunnilingus. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.